Well, please turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of this chapter. And Covenant kids, as we're turning there, as your parents permit, if you would draw a picture of a compass. Um, you should know what a compass is. It always points in one direction, north. And the Apostle Paul is going to share about his life. But he's not just sharing about his life. He's actually sharing about his life in the joys, but also in his weakness, he's always pointing in the same direction. He's always pointing himself and others to the Lord Jesus and the grace that comes from our Savior. So if you'll turn there, let's hear God's word from 2 Corinthians to our hearts this morning. Paul writes this, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than what he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because it's a surpassing greatness of the revelations, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for your grace. Lord, as it was sufficient for Paul, it is sufficient for us to sustain us, save us, Lord, to be defined by it. And we ask that your spirit would illuminate your word so that we would not only understand your grace, but become transformed by it, in it, through it. So would you align our lives with yours and help us to learn how to boast of your grace and in our weaknesses. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it could have been the greatest boast of his entire life, but it turned out to be what people would call the greatest blunder in the history of college football. Some of you probably know this story. It's from the 1929 Rose Bowl in which the University of California was playing Georgia Tech. 
There was a moment when they were tied 0-0 and the University of California's quarterback fumbled the ball. The defensive center, Roy Regals, picked it up. And being a bit confused by where everybody was at, tucked the ball under his arm, saw the end zone and took off. (laughs) And he ran as fast as he could to that end zone. The 50, the 40, the 30, the 20, the 10, all the while his teammates chasing after him, yelling, Roy, you're going the wrong way. It was the three yard line in which he finally heard his teammates stopped and was tackled on the one yard line by the opposing team. And it led to a subsequent safety, which was the factor that lost Roy Regal's team the game. What could have been a Rose Bowl touchdown, something that you could boast about for the rest of your life It became a defining marker because Roy became known as Roy Wrong Way Regals. I think we can appreciate poor Roy and this experience. But it's a question uh, of what direction are your boasts? (laughs) I could imagine being in poor Roy's shoes and running, boasting in my head, I'm going to score the first Rose Bowl touchdown of the game. I see it in sights. I'm going to run as hard as I can, boasting the entire way about the wrong direction. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing his letter to the Corinthians, he's actually deeply concerned that they might boast in the wrong direction as well. You see in the following chapter and all throughout the letter to in the second Corinthians, uh, Paul's been concerned for this church that they've been following uh, these, what he would almost ironically call super apostles, these false teachers, those who he even compares to the deceptive work of Satan in chapter 11. The boasts of these men were boasts of self-glory, of greatness, uh, their superior preaching skills to Paul, uh, their uh, influence that they have, uh, their credentials, a life that's built on their own strengths and wealth and success. The grace of the Lord Jesus wasn't enough. Perhaps even in their minds, weakness as it seems Paul argues for this, but they would see weakness as almost a proof that the Lord was not with them. They certainly were commenting about that about Paul. Paul knows the direction of his life. He knows his end goal. He knows where he's building his life upon, and it's not on his own abilities or credentials. It's not in his self-glory that will make Paul or the Corinthians content in life It's not in our strength. And Paul knows this because as our lives, as we endure, we endure many weaknesses. And if our lives are about our own strength, our own successes, uh, what happens when we experience weakness? 
whether it be physical challenges like cancer or a dead-end job in which we, we can't get motivated to, to grow and to learn and that's a difficult marriage perhaps or we just simply feel alone and discouraged and depressed. Paul's concerned that this Corinthian church will boast in their own strength and their own self-glory which will never satisfy them. And Paul, as he begins this passage, he's been boasting in the end of chapter 11, but he's boasting about himself in such a way. It's like a, a, a teammate who's, who's yelling to the Corinthian church, you're going the wrong way. Look at my jersey. Look at who I am. Trust me, I'm going the other direction. Paul is boasting about himself, but it's not his own self-glory. He's boasting in such a way that he's pointing the Corinthians in the right direction. The direction that leads to the grace of God. The, the work and the person of the Lord Jesus. A person and work that, that, that as Jesus came, he was not crucified in his own strength, but crucified in weakness. That he pursued the will of his father no matter what, even at loss, even in the face of pain and sorrow. He became a man of sorrows for his people. And Paul is directing the church towards him so that they would understand that life is found in Christ and nowhere else. Not in our success, not in our strength, not in our own glory. What appears to be perhaps a defense of Paul's apostolic ministry, and it certainly is, it's also a teaching, an instruction of Paul. This is what is worthy to boast in life. And so he gives two kinds of boast in this passage. A, a, a humble boast of glory, of an experience of glory, and a bold boast of weakness. That's what we're going to be looking at throughout this text. Humble boast of glory. Look with me in verse 1. 1 and 2 of this chapter. I must go on boasting, uh, though there's nothing to be gained by it. Note how he, he comments that there's really nothing to be gained by his boast. He's going to tell them something, but it's not really going to help them, even though it clarifies who he is. I will go on to boast on visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, 14 years ago, was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Paul is continuing again this, this boast from chapter 11. If you, if you have your Bibles and flip back there, you can see a long list of all the things. We've read this in a Sunday morning before, but it's important to note just how much Paul was willing to endure for the sake of the gospel. What his boasts have become, it's not boast in the, the numbers of his ministry, it's not in the amount of churches he's planted, uh, he's boasting in things that, that we would honestly probably be hum humbled or humiliated to perhaps boast on. Uh, being beaten, tortured, lowered out of a basket, out of a window to escape execution being whipped and stoned, left for dead. These aren't pictures of his strength and glory. These are pictures of the provision of his Savior 
the credentials that the Lord has given to Paul to actually protect him and keep him safe and to keep him focused on the ministry that God has given him. Jesus has been the one who has been his advocate and protector. Jesus has been the one who has continued to call Paul back from being stoned to death. But Paul's continuing and and he's perhaps wondering if these false teachers have been teaching not only about their preaching, but but perhaps even lifting up visions or, or revelation, a spiritual mountaintop experience, that that's what you need to follow God, to be spiritually mature. Paul tells us, if you, you want to see a spiritual mountaintop, I'll show you a spiritual mountaintop. I know a man. Now, what does he mean by saying, I know a man? He's talking about himself. It's clear in the passage in so many ways. He's distancing himself so that he's not boasting of himself, but he's sharing an experience he had. I know a man in Christ. 14 years ago, this was long before the Corinthian church even was in existence. This could have been around the time when his first missionary journey started. He was starting to plant churches. This is the encounter that he has. 14 years ago, I know a man in Christ. He was caught up to the third heaven. Notice it's the passive tense. He He didn't do it. He was caught up. In fact, all he could do is not offer resistance to what God was doing. And he doesn't know if it's in his body or not. But he experiences a third heaven. Now, some of us are wondering, what does he mean by third heaven? And let's not get too caught up in that. There's two possibilities. Third might be the the number that represents completeness. It could be the, the fullness of heaven. Uh, Very likely what I think it means is uh, heaven has a very uh, semantic range, large semantic range, and it could mean that the skies are heaven, uh, where rain comes down, and the the sun and the moon and the stars is a higher heaven, and and the Old Testament talks about the highest of heavens, and so a third heaven might be the, the, the heaven in which God resides the place where Jesus ascended to, that's certainly what's intended here because he calls it paradise in the next, the next uh, verse. Paradise uh, was a word Jesus used to describe where he was going. So Paul is ex- describing his experience of, a, of experiencing Jesus, where Jesus reigns, where he's ascended. And paradise is a, a word, it's a old Persian word actually referring to a garden. The description that Paul gives about this is the same of Jesus, is the garden of God. It's like an Eden. Beauty and wonder there, but it's not simply just the beauty of paradise itself. It's the place of his savior and king. And and Paul says again in verse three, whether I was there in body or or, or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, He's probably mentioning this because the Corinthians in the first letter have been struggling between what the relationship between body and soul is. And Paul's saying, don't get caught up in that. That's not the point. The experience is, if you're looking for a mountaintop, a spiritual mountaintop, a vision to follow, a revelation to experience, I've seen the very greatest. I've been the very presence of my savior and the king of the universe. He's saying this man has at least. Things there are not able to be uttered. (laughs) What he saw, what he 
heard, he can't share. He's not allowed to share. His words won't describe it, but it's not for the purpose of sharing. It's kind of like, well, I could probably foster a lot of theological truth and doctrines based upon what I saw in paradise. But that wasn't the point. The point was to experience the presence of Jesus. It wasn't about Paul and what he experienced himself, but who he came encountered in paradise. Paul is describing that the purpose of this wasn't to make him great. It was to actually show him the mission that he was on, the king in whom he served. Because notice how, go back to verse 2. It was a man, the only description about this man is that they were in Christ. The only description Paul gives about this vision, about who he is in experiencing it, is that he's been defined by the grace of God, defined by the Holy Spirit's work of uniting him to the Lord Jesus. And that's our goal. But it was a temptation, certainly, to build a ministry upon his great experience. How many converts could he have received if he told about the glorious experience? How many followers would follow Paul? But Paul's not building a ministry on himself. He's building a ministry on Christ. The grace of God is what Paul is seeking to present to the Corinthians and to build their church on, just as he's built his life on. See, it's so easy for us to want to build our lives on our strength. We live in a world that that declares the American dream. Uh, If you can only have the white picket fenced house, if you can only have success in your career, if you're not growing in your wealth and your financial securities, then, then what is the point of living? That is how our world talks. And Paul challenges that that's not what our lives are built upon. It's built upon a God who protects and sustains us, who actually walks with us as our king and directs our lives. I had a friend once complain about what the grace of God ultimately causes us to do, which is to slow down, which is to be humble and patient, to wait on the Lord. And she said, you know, Jake, the problem with the grace of God is that in our world, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, (laughs) And that's certainly true. When we're on a phone, how much easier it is to yell at somebody to get what we want. How much easier it is to to push our way at work. (laughs) How much easier it is to get everything we can out of life. You only live once after all. Paul's saying, don't build your life on that. Because there's all sorts of greatness. He's experienced greatness. None of it matters compared to who Christ is. The life we live is built not on ourselves, but in Christ, being united to him. That's what real greatness looks like. And so Paul moves from that boast, a boast that gains him nothing, he says, to a boast of his own weakness. Look with me in verse six. Though if I should wish to boast, if I would not be a fool, I would not be speaking the truth, or I would be, I would be speaking the truth. And Paul's saying, I could boast about these things, they're certainly truthful, but it's more important that you, what you see in me and what you hear from me. It's more important that you see that I'm small. Paul, remember the small. 
It's more important what you hear, the gospel, the presence of the Lord Jesus. That's what what he wants them to understand about his ministry and his life. And, and, And to keep him, actually to help Paul, the Lord does something to Paul. Uh, Look with me in verse seven. Uh, So to keep me from becoming conceited, he's gonna say this twice. In fact, he's gonna sandwich this phrase in between what God does to him. Keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, because of what I got to experience in Christ. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being conceited. Paul is very concerned that they would understand that that idea of conceitedness. It's actually to keep me from self-exaltation, self-glory, looking at me. God says, or Paul says that he was given a thorn. the, the presence, the, it doesn't say God here. Usually when Paul talks and there's a missing subject, he's referring to God. The thorn was given by God in the flesh. But notice how it's put. It's a thorn given in the side, but it's also a messenger of Satan at the same time. It's a pretty interesting way of saying it. Satan, who's seeking to deceive the church, to cripple the church, his best attempt to seek to destroy or deceive or twist God's people or or Paul and his ministry here, it becomes the means that the Lord uses to show forth his grace and his provision. It's the amazing thing what God does. He takes the best attempts of Satan. And that's what the cross is, remember. Best attempt to destroy the work of, the, of, of Jesus, the person, to see him mocked and crucified, tortured, beaten, killed, is the most glorious moment of God's grace and steadfast love for his people. Paul puts the sorrows and the heartache and the pain of this world in line with the sovereign hand of God who is at work in the life of his people to show them grace and to sustain grace and to build a kingdom of grace, of his work, his power. Now what is that thorn? That's the question everyone has, isn't it? What did Paul go through for this thorn? And throughout centuries of church history, it's been different things. The early church, uh, a lot of them thought it was a physical ailment. It might have been his eyesight. Remember, he's writing with large hand at one point. Could be a physical pain. The church in the Reformation time thought it was perhaps a moral temptation. They thought, well, maybe Paul is struggling with, with some sort of temptation in his life. And, and maybe that's the thorn that keeps nagging at him. Here's what I think. Again, this is... Jake, Jake and a few other scholars, that's <laughs> not just me. I think that Paul is actually struggling with these false teachers and these false apostles. I think he sees what their work is doing to, to distort and to twist the gospel in his life and it, 
It's a thorn in his side. In fact, when he talks about Satan in the last chapter, he talks about it in relationship to these false apostles, these false teachers. But here's the point. It's not really about the thorn, is it? It's about the outcome of what God does with the thorn in Paul's life. It's about making Paul dependent on the grace and the provision and the power of the Lord. In some ways, that's one of the most beautiful things about not knowing the thorn. Because it's that which keeps him dependent upon his Savior and his King. And that's true for all of us, whether it's physical problems, whether it's emotional struggles, whether it's the temptation of sin that takes hold of our heart and that we have to fight it constantly and it keeps us dependent, looking to Jesus, whether it's others who would blaspheme God or or slander us or, or destroy, seek to destroy our reputations. It doesn't matter. Because it keeps us dependent upon the one who loves us, who is our advocate and our protector, who is the one who who died for us, crucified for us, and rose from the dead, whom we share him. Paul, Paul is not overwhelmed perhaps by this thorn, even though it is hard for him. Because don't ever think that, that these situations that we're in. It's not that Paul's making light of the hardships or the thorn in his life. We shouldn't make light of our, our, our hard challenges and struggles in life. Because in verse eight, what he says is he, he's pleaded with the Lord. He is cried out to the Lord three times. Now, that word times doesn't actually exist in, in Paul's writing. It could be three seasons, right? It, it's not that Paul's being instructive. Some of us take this to mean, well, if I pray three times and God doesn't answer my prayer, I'm done praying. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is persistently pleading. It's so hard for him that he keeps bringing his pleas to the Lord until he understands the purpose that God has for his weakness. That's why Paul stops, not because he hit the number three. He stops because he understands what God has spoken to him. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's great boast is not in himself. He's actually learning more and more of God's love and power for him in the boast that he has of his weakness. What a challenging thought that Paul would actually not only live in his weakness, but boast in his weakness. And Paul's challenging the Corinthian church not to look to boast in their strengths, but to boast to be a church that's defined in their weaknesses by the power and strength of God. That's what our church ought to look like too. That we would boast not in our beauty and our splendor and our success and our wealth, but to boast in the power of God at work in our lives together. That is a beautiful beautiful way we as compasses point to the Lord Jesus. I know I've recently talked about uh, Johnny Erickson Tata 
Um, I'd encourage you, if you don't know her life story, go read about it today. It's a beautiful story of dependence. And she gives uh, talks and seminars and conferences all over the country. One conference, at a moment, of, at a break, after she had been talking about something, she told the story of being confronted by a large group of women who just wanted to talk to her and ask her how does she actually get a smile on her face in the face of everything that she's gone through and her complete and utter dependence upon her Savior. Enough that she could speak at a conference. And this is what she said. She said, at 6 a.m., her husband leaves for the day and I'm all alone at 7. And from, from 6 until 7... I just have to wait on my friend to come by the house. I'm all alone and I'm just praying that the Lord would watch over me because when that friend arrives, she's going to bathe me, get me dressed, sit me in my chair, brush my hair and teeth and then send me out the door every single day. It's a routine I hate. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have absolutely no resources. I don't even have a smile to take into the day. And so she prays, but Lord, you do. May I have yours today? Because God, I desperately need you. And she says, immediately when she gets asked by her friend, you know, how are you doing? Johnny replies, I turn my head towards her and I give her a smile straight from heaven. It's not mine, it's God's. Because I've learned that the weaker we are, the more we need to lean on God. And the more we lean on God, the stronger we find him to be. This is the gospel. The Lord Jesus is grace. He loves us. He saves us, sustains us, and we are defined by that grace. His grace is sufficient today, for his power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to rest as your servant Paul did, not in our strength, but in our weakness and the power that you give us, that that would be the boast of our hearts that everything that's good and right and perfect comes from you, not ourselves, but that you work in us to produce good and right and perfect things by your Spirit's presence and power. Would you help us when the sorrows and struggles of this world press upon us that we would be compasses, that we would be teammates to one another, that we would direct our boast to your faithful provision. And we ask that you'd lead us, continue to form in us a community that walks and boasts in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.